This decision raises the stakes all around for everyone. So it's both a sign of and an accelerant of America's democratic decline. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of America Explained. I'm your host Andy Gothorpe, bringing you an international perspective on politics, foreign policy and culture in the United States. This week, well, what else could the episode be about but the draft decision that was just leaked by the Supreme Court that looks like it might overturn Roe v. Wade in the near future. The news dropped a little late in the production cycle for the podcast, so I had to record this quickly outside of my usual studio setup, so the audio quality might be a little bit different, a little bit worse, in fact, than a normal episode, but I promise to return to our sky-high production values next week. So, well, here's what's happened. So... In an unprecedented development, a draft decision written by Justice Samuel Alito, one of the conservatives on the Supreme Court, has been leaked to the media. This decision is pending for a case called Dobbs v. Jackson. It's a case about a Mississippi law which bans abortion after 15 weeks. But what has the court has done, according to this draft decision by Samuel Alito, is that rather than just deciding whether or not to uphold this Mississippi law that bans abortion after 15 weeks, the court has turned this case into a vehicle to entirely overturn Roe v. Wade, which is the 1973 Supreme Court decision that establishes Americans' constitutional right to an abortion. This is a much more aggressive tack on this case than many people had predicted. We knew that Roe v. Wade was really imperiled now that there was a conservative majority on the Supreme Court, but the general thinking was that the court wouldn't want to move so quickly and so fully to get rid of the right to an abortion right now that maybe they would chip away at it gradually and, and that it would take maybe some years or, or you know maybe even as long as a decade to eventually die. They've gone straight for the jugular according to this ruling. Now, it is important to stress that the ruling is still a draft. We don't know that this is going to be the court's final decision. But understandably, a lot of people have started to wonder, well, if this is the final decision, what kind of impact is this going to have on Americans' rights, on American politics, and just on the American future? That's what I'm going to talk about in this episode. So I'll start off by talking about what exactly this would this decision would mean if it was passed. It doesn't mean that all abortion in the US will come to an end. It just means that if this decision goes through, then abortion law will return to the states. So that means each individual state will be able to make a decision whether it wants to legalize abortion or not legalize abortion and to set certain conditions for that. This will create the sharpest differentiation in the rights that Americans enjoy by state, probably since the time of segregation and before the civil rights era. It means that someone living in California will have very, very different rights to someone living just over the border in, say, Utah. And we already know, we have some idea at least, what the trajectory of this is going to be after the decision, because 13 states have so-called trigger laws, which means that they've already passed a law which says as soon as Roe is overturned by the Supreme Court, we will ban abortion entirely. 
Other states have laws that actually predate Roe that banned or heavily restricted abortion. After Roe goes away, those laws will presumably just come back into effect. And when you add these states together and, and other states that have stated an intention to do something in the aftermath of this decision, about 26 states, so just over half, are expected to ban abortion within a year of this ruling. Women who live in those states will be forced to travel out of state somewhere else where abortion is legal if they need or want the procedure. This is something that it will be difficult and expensive for many of them to do. Women who are younger or less educated or less affluent are probably going to lack the information or the means to do this to travel out of state. And it means, of course, that likely some of these women, at least, and perhaps many of them, will end up having illegal abortions that will be performed in their home states. It's, it's you know, history tells us that you can't ban abortion. You can just make it illegal. And when it's illegal, it's often very dangerous because the conditions that it has to take place in, are, you know, are not sanitary, maybe the person carrying out the abortion is not well trained. You know, you have all sorts of people in desperate circumstances making risky decisions, and, and that can have really, really bad outcomes for them. Some of these laws that we expect to come into effect make no exception for cases of rape or cases of incest, or in cases which is sadly more common than you might think when pregnancy is causing a life-threatening problem for a woman, a doctor who performed an abortion or a c-section in these latter cases might face prison for homicide. So doctors might have to make the choice about whether they're going to let a woman potentially die by forcing her to give birth naturally or performing you know, what is called an abortion but is really a life-saving procedure. So this is just going to create so many difficult circumstances, so many difficult moral choices for people, so many just examples of people having their rights stripped away from them and having the chances and the choices that we've come to accept as part of civilized life in the rest of the world taken away from them. And viewed especially from abroad, this really seems quite dystopian. It really is reminiscent of something out of The Handmaid's Tale. Abortion is something that's considered a fundamental right in the developed world, and to have it taken away based on the religious worldview of a minority of Americans is something that really just seems inconceivable when you view this from Europe particularly in a country that's supposed to have a separation of church and state. It's not supposed to be the case that public policy and law in America are based on religious principles. It also strikes many people as profoundly undemocratic. Now, we have to be a little bit careful when we talk about this because it, it is, of course, just the case that the way that the judiciary operates is that it, they are, you know, judges are undemocratic. That's not new. Judges aren't supposed to do what the popular will says they should do. They're supposed to interpret the law. And it's always the case that throughout American history, of course, you have these big divisive battles over what the Constitution means and what the law means and how the two should be interpreted. There's nothing new about that. And, and it was in some way very... Pro this is something that I've talked about on the podcast before. It was in some ways very problematic for the left that the right to an abortion was established via the judiciary because many, many people on the right wing of American politics felt that this didn't reflect their will and that it was a, an undemocratic thing to have abortion rights created basically just through a decision by the Supreme Court rather than an act of Congress in the first place. And actually, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the, you know, the notorious RBG, 
this really, really path-breaking feminist judge in America also believed actually that Roe v. Wade was the wrong way to establish abortion rights because she thought that it, by removing the topic from the field of democratic debate and, and doing this through the judiciary, that you basically missed the opportunity to win this argument among the public and then get abortion rights that way. So, of course, you know, the lack of democracy here is not to do with the way that the judiciary operates exactly, because the judiciary just does operate undemocratically, and it has to do that in order to do its job. What these complaints about a lack of democracy here get to is more the unmajoritarian nature of the political institutions which enabled these current judges to be appointed. So three of the conservative judges on the court right now were appointed by Donald Trump, who lost the popular vote in the 2016 election. And you may remember all of these shenanigans with Merrick Garland in, in the dying days of Obama's presidency, where a Supreme Court seat became available in the last days of Obama's presidency. And the Republicans refused to let Obama confirm a judge, nominate a judge and have him confirmed into that post. So they basically kind of broke all precedent to steal this seat, keep it empty until Trump came into office and then confirm a judge under Trump. So the fact that these things happened really makes it, you know, it seems to a lot of people that the court has just kind of lost legitimacy through these shenanigans and through the fact that such a large number of judges were appointed by a president who didn't even win the popular vote of, of Americans, wasn't even the choice of most Americans to be their president. It's also the case that increasingly justices have been confirmed in the Senate on a very, very narrow basis by senators. So if you go back something like 30 years, you used to find that Supreme Court justices were often not often confirmed in the Senate by maybe 70 or, or 80 senators. Nowadays, it's almost always nearly a 50-50 split. And if you look at the three most recently confirmed justices, then the senators who voted to confirm them represent actually a very, very small minority of Americans. So a lot of those senators come from really small rural states that don't have a very big population. So most Americans, by far the majority of Americans, you know, voted for senators who were opposed to these justices being confirmed by the Senate. So again, it strikes people as very undemocratic, not that the judiciary decides things behind closed doors, because of course that's what the judiciary does, but rather that the way that those recent judges have been chosen and confirmed was not in a way at all that reflected the popular will of Americans. And it is the case that the Constitution intended for the selection of Supreme Court justices to be something in which the people had a big say, but they just haven't recently at all. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. This is a very illuminating indication of how these counter-majoritarian institutions protect and enable the GOP to get their extreme preferences enacted. So polls differ, but they tend to show between 60 and 80% of Americans want to keep Roe. And there's just then a huge disconnect between the general public and this very small world of very militant anti-abortion activists. 
But these activists have managed to capture the GOP, and then the GOP has managed to capture judicial power and power in the Senate because of these institutions that don't reflect the popular will of the majority of the population. And it's, it's true that the GOP pays like an extremism tax in terms of votes. So if the GOP adopted more moderate positions on issues like abortion, it would do better overall in general elections when it faces the general public. But because of the Senate and the Electoral College and gerrymandering, the GOP can afford to pay this tax in terms of lost votes and still have a good shot of winning power. It's been interesting, though, to watch the, the political reaction from many on the right. And it's interesting that it's been kind of muted and not very celebratory. I think this is probably in part because the ruling isn't final yet. But I think it's also because a lot of Republicans realize that generally this is not a winning issue for them. You know, because of the unpopularity of banning abortion, they don't want to own this. Trump has been very quiet, even though appointing these three Supreme Court justices is the best thing that he ever did in the eyes of most conservatives. And a lot of other conservative commentators as well have been bizarrely trying to kind of play down the significance of this moment and claim that not much is going to change. Nobody has anything to worry about. This isn't a big deal. And that's just a really, really discordant message, given how central and important this goal has been to the right for so long. Now that they've achieved it, to, or they look like they're about to achieve it, to claim, oh, this is no big deal, really shows that they, they, they're scared of the consequences of this, I think. But I think another thing that's going on is that we're seeing the split that exists between the relatively small number of conservative activists and politicians for whom this is the most important issue in the world, you know, the most important issue in American politics, and the majority who have just been kind of, they've got used to paying lip service to this idea. The end of Roe is something that people have been talking about for as long as I followed American politics, but for most of that period it seemed far off or entirely impossible to imagine that it was actually going to happen one day. But despite that, if, if you were part of the conservative coalition, you had to pay lip service to this issue in order to keep the really militant activists in the tent, to keep them turning out to vote for Republican candidates and keep them in the party. And I think that at least part of the mainstream movement is still reckoning with the fact that now this has actually happened, something that they thought was just, you know, something that they said or they claimed to agree with because it, they needed to in order to appease the militants in their base. They are really kind of shocked and scarred that this has now actually happened and they're reckoning with what it means for them electorally and what it means for the conservative coalition in the future. They're going to be under a lot of pressure to take the next step after this and start advocating for a national abortion ban in federal law. And Mitch McConnell has already indicated that this might be something that the Republicans push for. There will, I think, be different schools of thought within the Republican Party on this. But I would be amazed if they don't ultimately come down on the side of pushing for a national abortion ban, because that just reflects the power that anti-abortion activists have within the conservative movement. And indeed, you know, so I think that the battle to either restore Roe via federal legislation or pass a national abortion ban will now become the next major front in this battle. And either of those seems unlikely to happen anytime soon because of the filibuster. And actually, the filibuster might help protect some 
more moderate Republicans and conservatives from the consequences of actually passing a national abortion ban. So it's much like uh, Republicans campaigned for years and years and years on the idea of overturning Obamacare, something that would have taken health insurance away from tens of millions of Americans. It would have been absurdly unpopular. Not Nobody actually wanted to do it, I don't think, or, or only at least extremists wanted to do it within the party. Moderate Republicans realized what this was going to do to them if they did it. And indeed, it never happened because, you know, they could never get enough votes to overcome the filibuster in order to get rid of Obamacare. Something similar might happen with Roe. We might settle down in this dynamic where extremist conservatives and anti-abortion activists are pushing for a national abortion ban, but the rest of the party just kind of pays lip service to that and, and knows that they don't actually have to suffer the political consequences of doing it because of the filibuster. I guess another scenario, which I would say is less likely but possible, is that this might actually be the issue that breaks the filibuster in the coming years. One of the two parties might decide to get rid of the filibuster or carve some kind of exception to the filibuster in order to pass either an abortion ban or a restoration of Roe in federal legislation. This issue is that important that, I, you know, if you're looking around for issues that might ultimately break the filibuster, then I think this has got to be a really, really high candidate, even if it doesn't look likely in the short term. So the other thing that there's been a lot of speculation about is what this might mean for the midterms coming up in November this year, and then the future of American politics more broadly. The effect on the midterms, I think, is really hard to predict. The general rule with abortion politics is that it's been quite a high motivating issue on the right, but not so on the left. The reason for that, though, was because left-wing activists and voters knew that they had Roe there to basically protect them from, from anti-abortion activists. That protection has now obviously gone away, or is going to go away, according to this ruling. So now that the right to an abortion is directly under threat, I think that this kind of turnout and, and enthusiasm dynamic might change, and we might see a big surge of enthusiasm on the left. But I think that this is also really going to fire up voters on the right, because now they can elect candidates at the state level and the federal level who might actually end abortion. Now that it's politically or rather judicially possible to end abortion, right-wing voters have a lot more you know, incentive to turn out on this issue as well. So if both sides' bases get fired up over it, then maybe that just cancels out. It makes the result a little bit hard to predict. I think that this, especially the effect on the midterms, is really hard to predict because we're entering a new era in American politics, the post-Roe era is going to be one with different political dynamics to, to some extent. I still, though, I think that the kind of safe bet is that this probably isn't going to alter the overall dynamics of the midterms, which are going to be determined probably ultimately by the economic situation and the disadvantages that incumbency places on the Democrats. It's a pretty iron law of American politics that a president's party loses at the midterms. When the country is facing a substantial economic challenge, as it is at the moment with high inflation, I think we can still expect this law to hold true. I wouldn't expect this to fundamentally alter that. In the long run, though, I think that the effect of this is actually easier to predict, and it seems incredibly likely that this is going to turbocharge the processes of polarization and division that we've already seen reach really scary heights in recent years. And the reason for that is that a lot of the really scary stuff that happened during the Trump years was to do with his like norm breaking and law breaking and these things that were happening behind closed doors where Trump was trying to overthrow the election result. 
And although people like me took an enormous interest in that, people who were very, very engaged and knowledgeable about American politics and the law and about how dangerous this was, I think it was highly abstract for a lot of people in the country. They might certainly have cared about it and, and been angered by it, but it didn't affect their fundamental rights. This is different. It takes away something that has been viewed as a fundamental right for 50 years, and that raises the stakes hugely, I think. This is particularly the case because the Roe ruling seems to create a precedent in constitutional law for the removal of other rights as well. So rights such as the right to gay marriage, the right to homosexual sex, the right even to contraception are based on the same right to privacy that the Supreme Court is claiming does not exist in this ruling on Roe. So all of these things could potentially be taken away in the future if the court fully embraces the argument that it put forward in this ruling. And indeed, you're already seeing some Republican senators and candidates talk about the, the, their desire to do away with these previous rulings, even, even contraception. So Senator Marsha Blackburn, a Republican senator, has a plan where contraception would only be available to married couples. And, you know, if these things get passed into law in the state and then they go to the Supreme Court, there's a good chance that now that the Supreme Court is going to say, well, actually, we also agree that this is an issue for the states. This isn't something that the Supreme Court should be mandating. So all of this is really in play now. It's a really scary, dangerous time in American politics and American life. And with all of this in play, the left is certainly going to be hugely energized to oppose it. And on the other side, conservatives are now going to see much higher stakes in every election as well. And if you thought a lot of people on the right seemed willing to jettison American democracy in order to keep Donald Trump in office, just imagine how they're going to feel about respecting election results if they come to believe that doing so will mean that the Democrats come back into office, reintroduce abortion, and then millions of unborn children will die in according to their worldview. This decision raises the stakes all around for everyone. People who oppose abortion and people who want the right to abortion to be restored and, and also the same goes for these other rights. So it's both a sign of and an accelerant of America's democratic decline. So we should close by saying that the ruling isn't official yet and maybe it's going to change. My feeling is that the leak actually makes it harder for the Supreme Court to change its mind now because doing so would look like it was backing down under pressure. But we don't know for sure what's going to happen. And so the ruling's expected in a month or so from now, about a month and a half. When it's issued, of course, I'm going to come back and, and analyze what's actually in it. We'll talk about the developments that happened uh, between now and then on this issue. And we'll look, take another look forward to the midterms in the future. Before then, we've got some interviews coming up that I'm really excited about. So I hope you tune into those and I'll see you next time. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Giants Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time. <laughs>